Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Social anxiety disorder is a prevalent comorbid disorder in samples of schizophrenia patients and is a significant predictor of functional outcome. The objective of this study was to determine if symptoms of social anxiety are distinct from negative symptoms of schizophrenia. 53 schizophrenia patients and 37 healthy controls were examined with the Leibowitz Social Anxiety Scale for Social Anxiety Disorder and for the Severity of Social Anxiety, the Positive and Negative Syndrome Scale, and the Chapman Scales for Physical and Social Anhedonia were also administered. Data were collected from 2005 to 2010 from inpatient and outpatient research centers at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. The authors found that social anxiety disorder was elevated more than tenfold in schizophrenia patients than in controls. Social anxiety and social fear were unrelated to the positive and negative syndrome scale with few exceptions. A family history of psychosis was a significant independent predictor of social anxiety. Research into schizophrenia is now increasingly focused on alleviating many of the chronic and disabling symptoms that affect a patient's functional outcome. This study demonstrates that social anxiety disorder is not only a prevalent and disabling comorbid condition, but it is also distinct from the negative symptomatology of the disease. Of interest, Schizophrenia patients with social anxiety were also more likely to have a family history of psychosis. This finding may prove useful when defining subtypes within schizophrenia given the heterogeneity of the disease. This work was supported by grants from the National Institute of Mental Health. As many as 4 million Americans suffer from binge eating disorder. Individuals with binge eating disorder eat large amounts of food in a single sitting with a loss of control, causing significant psychological distress. This disorder is linked to overweight and obesity, which are risk factors for metabolic syndrome. This study compared a group of overweight, obese individuals with binge eating disorder to a group of overweight, obese individuals without the disorder to see if there were any differences in metabolic health or medication use. The authors found no differences in blood pressure, waist circumference, fasting blood glucose, triglycerides, or good cholesterol between the two groups. For metabolic syndrome, the authors used two different definitions and found that when using a less strict definition, the non-binging overweight obese group was more likely to meet criteria for metabolic syndrome. There were no differences in medication use between the groups with two exceptions. The non-binging overweight obese group used more over-the-counter allergy medications and vitamins. The authors conclude that although the study was small, 
The results suggest that binge eating disorder does not pose additional risk for poor metabolic health beyond those from overweight and obesity. This study was supported in part by a National Institutes of Health Career Development Grant. For patients with type 2 diabetes and depression, sleep problems may negatively impact diabetes control. Thus, deliberate assessment and intervention for sleep problems early in the treatment process may be of clinical benefit for these patients. In this continuing medical education offering, the authors examined a convenient sample of patients diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and provisional threshold or sub-threshold depression at two family health centers. Cases were identified using a population-based registry of patients diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Data from patients with a primary care provider appointment from the beginning of April 2011 through the end of June 2012, and with at least one nine-item patient health questionnaire depression screener and a glycated hemoglobin A1C laboratory test between two weeks before and 10 weeks after the depression screening were eligible for inclusion. The authors found that poor sleep was the only depression symptom related to diabetes control for patients with depression and type 2 diabetes. The authors were unable to examine whether getting too much sleep, too little sleep, or poor sleep quality affects diabetes control differently. However, their findings suggest that it may be important for providers to assess and treat sleep problems in patients with depression and type 2 diabetes. Effective medical and surgical management of pediatric congenital heart disease to reduce long-term adverse neurodevelopmental outcomes is an important clinical objective in primary and specialty health care. Previous evidence has repeatedly demonstrated a modestly increased risk of more subtle neurodevelopmental impairments requiring assessment and supportive intervention services by school age. In this population-based study, the authors found that the presence of congenital heart disease lesions imparts a relatively low risk for incident neurodevelopmental outcomes over time, whereas exposure to cardiac and non-cardiac surgical procedures is associated with development of several adverse neurodevelopmental disorders over time. Increasing practitioner knowledge about factors affecting the development of long-term adverse neurodevelopmental sequelae in children with congenital heart disease not only identifies a high-risk subgroup of children, but also underscores certain strategies to optimize their long-term outcome. The authors conclude that practitioners should maintain vigilant surveillance of patients with congenital heart disease, especially those exposed to surgical procedures, and any child with a documented history of hypopoxemia throughout childhood and adolescence to identify any neurodevelopmental concerns early and address them promptly. Funding for these analyses was provided through a Clinical Incentive Research Grant from the University of South Carolina Office of the Provost.
Gabapentin is commonly used off-label in the treatment of psychiatric disorders with success, failure, and controversy. While many physicians prescribe gabapentin as an adjunct in psychiatric disorders, the evidence base is not always clear. Furthermore, gabapentin's early off-label use was promoted by pharmaceutical companies that often funded the research studies. A systematic review of the literature was performed to elucidate the evidence for clinical benefit of gabapentin in psychiatric disorders using PubMed and Ovid Medline search engines from 1983 to 2014. The search produced 219 articles pertinent to gabapentin use in psychiatric disorders. These references were read, reviewed, and analyzed, and 34 psychiatric disorder clinical trials contain quality of evidence level 2-2 or higher. On the basis of thorough review with emphasis on higher quality clinical studies, gamapentin may have benefit for some anxiety disorders, although there are no studies for generalized anxiety disorder. Gabapentin has less likely benefit adjunctively for bipolar disorder. With regard to substance abuse, gabapentin has some efficacy for alcohol craving and withdrawal symptoms and may have a role in adjunctive treatment of opioid dependence. There is no clear evidence for gabapentin therapy in depression, post-traumatic stress disorder prevention, obsessive-compulsive disorder, or other types of substance abuse. Limitations of available data include variation in dosing between studies, gabapentin as monotherapy or adjunctive treatment, and differing primary outcomes between trials. Anxiety disorders are among the most common mental disorders in Europe and the United States. In Germany, consultation psychiatrists work in general hospitals to ensure proper diagnosis and treatment of patients with mental disorders. In this study, the authors investigated how many patients with anxiety disorders were treated by a consultation psychiatrist within a university hospital in Berlin, Germany between 2011 and 2012. They also looked at which departments these patients were originally treated in, whether the primary reason for the hospital visit was the anxiety disorder or a somatic disorder, and which treatment the consultation psychiatrist recommended. The majority of patients with anxiety disorder had panic disorder, and the most common department for the consultation psychiatrist to meet patients with anxiety disorders was the emergency department. More than half of patients with anxiety disorders sought treatment in the hospital because of their anxiety disorder. However, patients with somatic illnesses, especially cardiac and respiratory illnesses, often experienced anxiety symptoms and had a comorbid anxiety disorder. The consultation psychiatrist often recommended a combination of pharmacologic and psychotherapeutic treatments. Benzodiazepines and psychoeducation were common acute treatments, while antidepressants, pregabalin, and psychotherapy were common long-term treatments. This study emphasizes the importance of the consultation liaison psychiatric service within a general hospital for the diagnosis and treatment of patients with anxiety disorders.
Suicide is the second leading cause of death in North America among people aged 15 to 34 years. The college years are particularly stressful for young people because of the pressure to succeed and the increased social and financial responsibility resulting from transition into adulthood. Many students attempt suicide during these years. Mental health services are available on campus. However, most students do not know about these services or are reluctant to use them because of associated stigma and low perceived need. Knowledge of specific factors associated with suicide attempts in young people attending college can help inform and guide suicide prevention efforts. In order to identify such factors, the authors compared 61 college and university students to 125 non-students of similar age who attempted suicide and presented to the emergency department of two general hospitals in Montreal, Canada between 2009 and 2010. The majority of students and non-students were female, and most used poisoning and laceration as a method of suicide. More students attempted suicide during the fall versus winter-slash-spring semester. Students were less likely to have been born in Canada, less likely to have a substance abuse problem, and more likely to have family-slash-social support compared to non-students. About half of students and non-students were hospitalized, and those who attempted suicide in the previous year were more likely to be hospitalized for over a week. Knowledge of specific factors associated with suicide attempts in young people can help inform and guide suicide prevention efforts in both academic and community settings. Efforts to promote mental health literacy and available resources to students and faculty may help reduce suicide attempts in this population. The doctor-patient relationship is a powerful part of a doctor's visit and can alter health outcomes for patients. Therefore, it is important for physicians to recognize when the relationship is challenged or failing. In this issue's Rounds in the General Hospital article, the authors discuss the factors affecting the doctor-patient relationship and how trust, knowledge, regard, and loyalty can positively impact patient outcomes. After reading this article, physicians should be able to recognize the causes for disruptions in their patient relationships and implement solutions to improve care. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to read brief reports on topics ranging from fibromyalgia treatment to mood changes in multiple sclerosis, as well as a new entry in our psychotherapy casebook section, many timely case reports, and special web-based interactive content. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. Also, we are excited to offer a digital flip page edition of this issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This turn page format will give you the feel of holding a print journal in your hands while allowing you to seamlessly navigate from article to article. We hope you will take a look at our digital journal, as we think you will like it. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders.
This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.